House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You are back in the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren sitting at the controls, and uh, our commentator is <laughs> David North <laughs> Martino. I am here. Thanks, Al. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. Um, kind of here. Kind of here. Well, here we go. Um, so now today we are um, talking with an author, and uh, we're uh, from Pen and Sword Books, which we've done quite a few of their authors, do some great uh, great uh, books. Um, so we are going to talk about the real Sherlock Holmes, and we're going to talk about um, the, the author and all sorts of things about this. So uh, Angela Buckley, thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. It's fantastic to be on the show. Angela, so how did you get into um, um, writing about, you know, history and, and this sort of, um, this, this kind of a story like uh, Sherlock Holmes? Um, well, I was on a, a career break from teaching. I used to teach um, languages, in fact, um, and um, I was quite bored. So I started doing my own family history, and um, it soon became very apparent that my ancestors, who mostly were in the UK, not all, um, were very poor, and many of them had actually uh, broken the law. And so they committed all kinds of um, crimes, theft, um, swearing, which was a crime back then, um, <laughs> brawling, you know, drunkenness. And, and my Italian family, who were in Manchester, because I'm from Manchester, uh, my Italian family in Manchester, um, I discovered Detective Caminada because he was part of the Italian community. Wow. Um, lucky you didn't end up in Australia, right? I mean... Surprising <laughs> <laughs> that we didn't end up in Australia. <laughs> and swearing, I'd be in jail for my whole life. Why? Um, <laughs> So that is, it's, it's pretty interesting to go back in your family history, isn't it? It's kind of, um, I think a lot of us don't realize what our ancestors uh, had to live through. Absolutely. Uh, it was a huge eye-opener for me. And in fact, my first experience, which wasn't crime-related, was to go to a workhouse um, graveyard, not far actually here in the south of England, and to see the, it's a, it's a, a, there's a gravestone to unmarked graves, essentially. They put a plaque up. Uh, to find that, you know, three generations of my family who were paupers and died in the workhouse, you know, were buried in that that long neglected graveyard. And, you know, for me, born, you know, in the later half of the 20th century, with so many opportunities, it, it's huge. It, it's truly humbling, I, I think. Yeah, pretty amazing, you know. And, and I, I, well, watching that series, The Murder, Mystery and Families, you know, where they, they're trying to uh, go back and... Uh, and uh, see if their um, ancestors were convicted um, fairly. And mm. uh, I can't believe how many of them, they just buried them all in the same same hole, kind of. Well, yes, exactly. And, uh, you know, whilst on the one hand, some crime adds some colour and drama to your family tree, it does, it does make you think about their, their experiences um, very much so. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a sobering journey, but it, it's, uh, yeah, it's too late to change the past. But I think I think I've found the more that I've done this is that I also like to honour their voices and bring their voices back to life, particularly poor people and working class people. And I think, you know, that's that's what I can do now is to 
when I'm talking about crime and not necessarily crime with my own family, because now I now I you know now I investigate all kinds of crime. Uh, for me, I think it's quite important to um, to bring the victims' stories back to life as well as the perpetrators. So when you're doing uh, a lot of your crime coverage, um, how do you choose what cases you want to sort of research? That's a really interesting question. I find that they find me. Um, so often it will be about location. Um, so there will be um, a location that will grab my attention. Uh, for example, it might be somewhere uh, where I've lived. So my I've done quite a lot around my childhood home uh, in Manchester. There was a famous shooting of a police officer and, a, and, a, and again, a miscarriage of ju justice there. Um, so that's what drew my attention. Uh, here in Reading, uh, we had um, serial killer in 1896, uh, who was a baby farmer, probably one of the UK's most prolific um, serial killers, but she was a woman, so, she, so her story's been partly lost. It tends to be uh, location and character. I do um, research, I'm doing a PhD at the moment in detective history, and when I go through the court records to have a look to see what the detectives did, because that's essentially the focus of my studies, something will grab my attention and then I want to study those further. So it might be a small detail or an interesting relationship or an unusual crime. And then, and then once it's grabbed my attention, I usually find that when I start investigating, then I have to see it through to its conclusion. I just wonder, how, how hard is it to investigate some of the uh, um, older crimes, the ones that were done a long time ago, like in the 1800s? Is it in, in the UK, is it difficult? Um, no, it's probably easier here from, well, from 1837 onwards, through the Victorian period, it's much easier here because the court records, there are, there are, there are millions of court records that were kept and not all have survived. So we're quite fortunate here. You can, we can go to the National Archives, which is just up the road from me in London, and you can have free access to all the court records. And, you know, often you just get a massive box. With, a, with lots of parchment, sort of rolled parchment uh, kind of scroll, not exactly scrolls, but sort of folded paper that are quite dirty. They've obviously been, you know, somewhere else for, for most of, you know, most of the last century. And often you're the first person that's looked in them, you know, for, for decades. And that for me is the most exciting thing. You know, you start off with a big box of paper and then you rustle through and you think, wow, I'm uncovering things here that nobody's ever written about, nobody's researched. Uh, it is truly memorable. And if it's something connected to, your, connected to your own family, it's even better. So sometimes, even though you're supposed to be quiet, sometimes you want to stand up and go, hey, just look what I found. Look what I found. You know, like if I found photographs, <laughs> photographs of dead bodies that you find in there. Evidence. I found, I won't go on, but there's evidence. Yeah. I found evidence from crimes for 150 years ago buried in these boxes in small envelopes, you know, like pieces of cloth with bloodstains on that nobody <laughs> else has ever found. No, it's no, it's crazy. I, I come across that, and some of the pictures the uh, cops have taken of the um, criminal and stuff. I'm I'm surprised at what they used to do, how they used to treat people. Mm. Um, crazy. So, what's the biggest sort of uh, surprise um, since you've been searching crime uh, that you've come across? Um, I think there are always lots of surprises. Um... I think in terms of the research, I think I think it's quite special the first time, which sounds slightly peculiar, the first time you come across crime scene photos. I think uh, for me, the biggest surprise is how, and it's something that's a feature of my PhD, is how um, skilled the Victorian detectives were 
um, despite their lack of training uh, and despite their working class backgrounds, um, how skilled they were in crime investigation and, and how that process developed, I think is really surprising. And, and I hope to be able to publish that at some point. But, the, you know, there are lots of surprises there in how they connect the dots, you know, how they deduct things. And of course, this is real life. You know, it isn't fiction. So that that never ceases to amaze me, I think, is the the brilliance of individual police detectives uh, who are operating without any forensic science, uh, without any real formal knowledge. Yet they still now you could argue that they don't always get the right results. Uh, and that's certainly true. But the process, I think, for me is always surprising and fascinating. Yeah, I think it is, too. It's pretty amazing. So now this the, the, this book here, you've got the, the real Sherlock Holmes. And so. Maybe explain the premise of this. So um, Detective Jerome Caminada was basically a, a boy from the slums originally. So he was born in Manchester in 1844, right at the heart of the slums, uh, where my own ancestors lived. And in fact, um, on my English ancestry, um, my three times great grandfather had a brothel uh, on, on, the, on Detective Caminada's beat. But he, he rose from the he rose from absolute poverty. So he was a he was a child of immigrant parents. He had a basic education. He joined the police force and he rose from poverty to become one of the city's most celebrated detectives uh, in the in the history of the city, not just back then. In the 19th century, it was a household name, but he got, he's got forgotten over the, century, over the century since. And so I wanted to bring his, his story back to life and his case book, um, his kind of. Uh, he wrote his memoirs. It, it really does have all the hallmarks of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's writing. He was an extraordinary character. And I've not found any other character since I've developed my research in this area. I've not found anyone quite so unique as, as Jerome Caminada. So I wanted to bring his story back to life. And so I've been researching, researched his, uh, in his exploits, because that's what they really are, exploits uh, and adventures, um, to, to retell his story. And that's what the book is about. So what did you find? Like, what did you when you do something like that? Um, I'm sure there's a lot of things in this 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 case that you didn't expect to find. Um, I didn't expect to find such a variety. So he he was responsible for um, catching something like 1200 criminals single handedly when he was a detective in the city. And uh, I think, you know, it's been really interesting to find out more about all his cases. So you've got everybody sort of in there from quack doctors and forgers and race course thieves and fake air hunters and, and of course, murderers. And I think for me, it's the variety. I mean, and I'm always amazed by the by the ingenuity of criminals <laughs> as well as the detectives. Um, and and the variety and the range of crimes that were taking place in the late 19th century or the second half of the 19th century in places like Manchester, which was, you know, was a crime capital of, of England at the time. Um, that that never ceases to amaze me. Um, and, and then, of course, Detective Caminada's sense of deduction and how he works things out um, and how he brings his, you know, his criminals to justice um, effectively. How did he go about solving a case? Did he have a specific method that you found? Um, he tended to, like most detectives of that era, he tended to rely on instinct to a certain extent. So he kind of instinctively knew when a crime wasn't a crime, when it was a crime, and, so, and when it wasn't. So he could kind of differentiate. And then he had, um, he had an encyclopedic memory, it would seem. So he knew the criminal fraternity, fraternity in, in Manchester extremely well and in other parts of the country. So he had... 
I mean, they used to go into um, prisons to memorise, you know, offenders' faces, you know, before they had photography or before photography became so common. And he used to do that. So he was able to, he, he had a great wealth of knowledge of individual people and perpetrators. And he learnt about lots of different crimes. So he learnt about chemical poisoning um, and he learnt all about the law. And he could, he, could, he could just make these extraordinary connections that were outside the box, I think, compared to other detectives. And that's what he would rely on. I mean, he, he relied on, on eyewitness statements like all the police did. He also had a network of informants that he used to, he was, a, he was a very devout Catholic and there's a beautiful church that still exists in Manchester called the Hidden Gem, it's called St Mary's and it's right in the centre of the city uh, as still is today and, and it's surrounded by kind of tall buildings and it was in the past and Caminar is a beautiful white marble church, it's a stun, it's stunning interior and Caminar used to go in there and meet his informants on the back pew and he used to pretend that he was in prayer and in fact he was just eliciting information. So he had all these kind of skills, um, he was able to disguise himself and she did, he did regularly. So it was a combination and he was fearless and, and he was determined, you know, he would go to Every, you know, to the last degree to catch, the, you know, to catch his man, as they said back in the day, but to catch his perpetrator. One thing I noticed, you know, when they got when they caught someone like a murderer or something and they tried them, it seemed like they were just if they were found guilty, they were hung like in, in a couple of months or even sooner. I mean, that's true. Um, so they, they, they did carry out executions very swiftly, usually within within a month, usually. Um, uh, but um, it is a bit of a fallacy to think that, um, that there were so many hangings here. Uh, in fact, there weren't uh, hanging. Uh, execution wasn't that common. The, they gave out the death penalty regularly, but usually it was commuted to life imprisonment. So here in Reading, we've got a Victorian prison and I've done some research into its history. And over its 100 and sort of roughly 50 year period, they only carried out about 23 executions, um, which is probably, you know, fairly indicative of, of, of the rest of the country. So there really were only, you know, most cities, I mean, outside of London, of course, so Manchester, for example, probably wouldn't have more than one or two executions uh, a year, um, although it does seem as though, we, you know, they were always executing people, but there was, you're absolutely right, it was very fast. It was, it was, you know, you were taken from this place and off you go, and it's, it could be, you know, the following weekend. Unless you could be spared by, you know, by a pardon or, a, you know, somebody would intervene. Because there was always this desperate rush to get the authorities to intervene and then, you know, have, a, have it reinvestigated. But you had to be pretty quick. Oh, yeah. I was going to say there's no, uh, no 15 years of appeals. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. It's crazy. Um, so another thing is, I guess the lifestyle, I guess you really kind of had to, you know, delve into how people lived in um, the 1800s and because and, and it, it was so much different and the things that, that people faced. Um, and that has to really come across in the book as well. Yes, there's lots of background information in the book and certainly, you know, the poverty. Um, so, so at this time in Manchester, actually, it, it was still poverty was still endemic um, and particularly in certain communities so the Irish community really suffered in the city they used to live in these awful cellar dwellings where the river would rise you know and it would be damp all the time um, also the, the people who worked in the mills I mean there's one quite poignant a chapter where um, Detective Caminada chases quack doctors and they're you know fake doctors and, and it really was because the health of the people at the time was so poor that they and they couldn't afford to obviously get care from a, a real doctor because you had to pay for everything. 
Um, so they turned to quack doctors who used to sell them, you know, lotions and potions to improve their health. And of course, it didn't. It did the opposite. And then they used to have to start, you know, stealing in order to kind of fund their habit. But the, the pitiful um, physical appearance of some of the victims, you know, is, is really is really really moving you know the people who worked in the factories factories uh, they'd all go deaf because of the, the, the noise of the textile mills you know they weren't fed properly they'd be pale and and of course disease was rife in the city and um, the cholera typhus diphtheria would just rush through the communities you know um, claiming thousands of lives so this is really the backdrop of of, of life in in manchester at the time and of course of, of the book the life expectancy um at the time of 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 Caminada's early career in the 1870s was about 18 years for a working class adult. So it's not very, it's not very long, really, is it? Uh, just like um, Sherlock Holmes, uh, Detective Caminada also had uh, a nemesis, uh, very much like Moriarty. Is that correct? He did have a, ne a nemesis. I mean, he he, uh, he wasn't. I mean, he was very clever. <laughs> he wasn't quite sophisticated as Professor, uh, you know, Moriarty. But he um, he was about the same age as Caminada. He was a blacksmith by trade. But by night, he was also a very successful burglar and um, and a lock, you know, a, lo a lock picker. He, put, he, used to, he used to go for safes. He used to pick safes, locks of safes in warehouses and shops. And he met Caminada for the first time at the beginning of Caminada's career when he was a police constable. And Horwich, he was called Bob Horwich. Bob, it's not quite the, quite the right name, really, for, a, for a, such a, such a <laughs> Machiavellian character, but he was called Bob, Robert Horwich. And um, um, he basically, he stole a watch, and PC Caminada, as he was then, um, was responsible for catching him. And because it was the third time that Horridge had been served um, a conviction, he was then sent down for seven years' stretch, because he had, like, a three-strike system back then. And so he vowed that he would get even with Caminada. And um, throughout the next 20 years, they kind of played cat and mouse, and Horridge went down another, another two times for, for burglary. And then it all came to the head in 18, 1887, when Horwich was discovered um, breaking into a shoe shop, uh, again, not very glamorous, in the middle of the night, <laughs> and he, um, he, he shot two police officers. He didn't kill them. It wasn't Caminada. And then the chief constable knew that the only man to be able to run Horwich to the ground uh, was Detective Caminada. Detective Caminada went into disguise. He consulted his informants, and he tracked Horwich to Liverpool. So not so glamorous, obviously, Switzerland. But, uh, and uh, he, he recognised uh, Horwich from a distance by the way that he walked. And he snuck up behind him, basically. And both were armed. Caminada and Horwich were both armed. And he managed to grab hold of uh, Horwich before he could put his hand into his pocket to get his firearm. And, and he, you know, he said something like, you know, one move, literally one move, and you'll get the contents of this, as he held the gun to his head. And he brought him in. And uh, Horwich then served a life sentence. So, uh, so yeah, it was, it was kind of the, the climax of that, that relationship, if you like. And interestingly, you know, they were actually both quite similar in their background. So, but one chose to you know, go for the law and the other one chose to break the law. Mm. So a lot of people, uh, poisoning was a big thing back then too, wasn't it? Yes, again, it wasn't quite so common as portrayed, um, but um, but yes, there were arsenic poisonings certainly towards in the 1880s, well, all the way through the second half of the of the uh, 19th century. Caminada didn't come across too many poisoners. Um, he did come across a woman who um, almost poisoned herself uh, because she was hoodwinked by a suitor um, who was a, sort of a, a con man. There were lots of con artists uh, in Victorian England. And so she was tempted to take something that, that 
um, she didn't take enough, fortunately, and and the Met, it was the Metropolitan Police actually, and they um, they managed to save her, and they referred it to Caminada because she was from Manchester. But yes, uh, poisoning was a problem because, of course, without the forensics, it was very difficult to detect. We have obviously had the arsenic test from 1838, but even then, uh, it was pr pretty difficult to say conclusively whether somebody had been poisoned. I was going to say, too, and this is the time of, uh, you know, the Jack the Ripper and all that sort of thing. Um, were, were there a lot of serial killers around other than Jack the Ripper, like in Manchester? Were there, did they have that problem, too? Um, no, no, I don't think serial killers were that common. I mean, you have the baby farmers that I referenced earlier who you could say were serial killers, and they were women who um, took in children uh, for, for fostering, which was there were no legal practices at the time you could basically you could sell your children uh, so they 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 would buy children to say to, to adopt them and they would they would um either allow them to starve to death and in fact this particular case she did strangle them and that she would be a serial killer because she she had at oh she had hundreds of children and she was only convicted on one but the, but in terms of you know more regular sort of homicide uh, no not really um, I don't think most uh, from my experience of, of looking into the archives and looking very closely at court records, I would say that most homicides were um, domestic abuse and um, domestic violence uh, cases. Mm. And you were saying it's quite poor. So they, 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 the city was very poor. Like there's a lot of people that had no money and they had to do things to get by. We at Wondery, creators of Dr. Death, Scamfluencers, and Over My Dead Body, go deeper into complex true crime stories to give you an inside look at the facts. And now we're launching the ultimate true crime fan destination, Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Wondery's Exhibit C gives you the detective's lens of all of the evidence, taking you step by step through the twists and turns of each true crime case. Join the Exhibit C online community to access exclusive show merchandise, member-only content, and to hear directly from top criminal and social justice experts, witnesses, and investigators as they take us beyond the evidence and into the case file. Join now by following Wondery Exhibit C on Facebook or find us on the web at WonderyExhibitC.com and listen to true crime podcasts on Wondery and Amazon Music. Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. So, you know, prostitution, I guess, uh, stealing things and, and, and things like that. How did the police treat people um, that were in that, that kind of position? Uh, actually, with quite a lot of compassion, I would say, and not just Caminada. He, 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 he was very generous, actually. He often tried to rehabilitate people. He knew people very well. He understood um, their, their challenges. Now, it was um, in, in, in England, certainly in the early, in the 19th century, there was a deliberate policy of employing police officers who were working class. And this was because they were strong and resilient and physical. But actually what it meant was is that the police constables understood where people were coming from because they were from the same, you know, the same background. And so many of them were very compassionate. There's another police officer um, that I uh, researched who, who worked close to where I grew up myself in Manchester. And he opened a soup kitchen uh, for the poor people that he encountered in his police work, which went on. You know, he, he, he fed hundreds of thousands of children and starving families through the winters, which went on right the way through his 50 year career. So there was a great deal of compassion. 
and, uh, and and there was a bit of a camaraderie as well, which perhaps sometimes is romanticised, but actually it was true. It was based on reality, where where they would you know let people off, or they would say, oh, just you know try and behave yourself a bit better, or or I'll take you home, or that kind of thing. So so no, there, there was a lot more compassion, I think, uh, back then. What kind of a home life did did Jerome have? Was it um, was he married? Did he have kids? Well, yes. I mean, he had lots of personal. He experienced lots of personal tragedies in his in his in his own life. Uh, firstly, when he was when in his childhood, so his father died when he was three, and one of his brothers, and then uh, then they were they, they they were thrown into poverty because his mother was illiterate and she worked in a textiles uh, factory. And so they had to move to a really poor, an even poorer part of town. And there were further deaths in the family. And there's a lot of evidence in the death certificates of his siblings to suggest um, that um, the family were blighted by syphilis. And this was really common, uh, obviously, in Victorian England with no antibiotics. It just, again, spread through human contact. So when Caminada married uh, in 1881, he was quite he, he was quite old by then, for, for, by Victorian standards. He was in his late 30s. He married Amelia Wainhouse, who was the daughter of a, another textiles worker, and they set up home together. But their first three children also they died of congenital heart disease, which again is possibly linked with the syphilis, um, you know, G, the, the the infection. Um, so they had a really, we had a really tough time. They did have two more children later on who did live long and long and healthy lives. And Caminada became quite wealthy. But he had some some really serious personal tragedies to deal with. I think which made him the man that he was. Hmm. So I guess I guess the it, sickness was a big problem, right? Um, a, a lot of ch- children and people died. Yes, the mortality, the infant mortality rate was was sky high. And in Manchester, mid-century, um, it was 50% of children didn't make their first birthday. Um, so, yeah, that's what it's like. And if you, when you do family history and, and you know, those, those in the States who, who look into, you know, have English heritage, ancestry and look into their, you know, past, they will notice that in any given, well, obviously they're big families without contraception, but you will notice that in most families, um, you know, they will lose maybe one, two, three children out of eight or ten, maybe even more sometimes. So, so that was very common. And my own family, you know, suffered multiple losses in the past. Um, you know, I think my great-grandparents, the ones that came from Italy, they had ten children and only four survived. So that, that was the reality for most people. Hmm. How, it, so after, after writing this and, 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 and doing this book, um, how do you think it's changed you? I think it's changed me completely, actually. I mean, I, I, it's, it's very much, um, it's brought me into the dark side. So I, I'm very much, you know, work as a crime historian now. Um, it's, it's drawn, it drew me into the underworld. Um, and so, uh, and, and yeah, it's, it's changed my life immeasurably, really. I mean, I now work full time uh, doing this um, and I lecture and, and, and you know, um, work as a part-time lecturer at Oxford Brooks University. So, so yeah, it's become very much, um, it's been very, very much my life. And it's also made me question things. It's made me think about more about life. Um, it makes me question the news today more. It makes me look at, you know, it, it makes me try and look into things, you know, a bit more today, particularly anything to do with policing. I'm always making comparisons. But yeah, it has. It's, it's, it's taken me on a journey, I would say, um, which is beyond, perhaps it's gone beyond crime. Um, although I still focus on crime, but it, yeah, it's 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 very much a study of of human relationships and and of and of you know human conditions and existence. Really, I think I think crime is a is an interesting filter, so you can you can see all sorts of things about society. 
So do you find that you've changed um, the way you look at other people, what you, you know or that you're around? Like, are you suspicious of everybody? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I, I, I guess I, <laughs> my children would say probably, yes. I'm always saying, oh, watch out for this, watch out for that. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's actually helped me perhaps not to judge people quite so, um, you know, ironically. It's, it's probably helped me not to judge people quite so harshly. I think it's helped me, you know, in terms of contemporary life, to look behind the scenes a bit more, to look at what people might be struggling with, you know, maybe people who commit crime or, or do things that you perhaps wouldn't always approve of. So, in fact, uh, yeah, I think it's... Uh, yeah, <laughs> try not to shout too much at TV programs. <laughs> well, I, I think that, yeah, you know, and, and policing and TV, everything's kind of advanced a lot since then. But do you think do you think policing has changed all that much outside of that? Do you know, I don't think it has, because, you know, if you think about any contemporary um, kind of, say, for example, a homicide investigation, which is one of my special subjects, um, in fact, the police still work on instinct a lot, and often um, cases are solved out of luck, perhaps, rather than anything else. I mean, obviously, we have social media, and that makes a huge difference because you can post photographs. But in fact, and people, you know, people engage with, with, with the police more. But in fact, they used to do that in the past. So when a police, when a detective was investigating a, a um, a case in the past, particularly, I mean, the, the Jack the Ripper murders are a case in point. They were inundated with contact from the public and general public letters, people coming in, people having ideas. And, and much of policing is still based on, on eyewitness accounts, isn't it? Uh, particularly, in, you know, in the, in the courts as well, when things get to court. Now, obviously, you don't have forensic. The forensics is, is different. But you can, you can use forensics to put somebody in a place in a specific location, but you can't always make that link to, to working out whether they actually committed the crime. So, so I don't think it's changed that much, to be honest. Hmm. Yeah, and eyewitness is always kind of um, questionable at times, right? Quite often it's, it's not that good. Oh, exactly. And that was the case, you know, certainly was the case uh, in the Victorian times. And I noticed more in the Victorian investigations that they relied heavily on what people were wearing. So there's always a description of the suspect with, with the clothing. And in fact, that worked better in the, in, in the past because people didn't have very many changes of clothes. So in fact, um, often I've come across cases where the perpetrator, the obvious perpetrators have covered up the blood on their trousers with paint because they didn't actually have anything else to wear. So, uh, and, and of course also what you wore denoted who you were in society. Um, so if you were a laborer, you wore certain clothing, you know, if you were a gentleman or a woman, you know, you would wear certain clothing. And that's why the detectives used to disguise themselves is because it was easy to dress as a butcher or a traveling salesman. Um, so, so that was a useful for them, that was a very useful uh, kind of tool before they got to sort of looking at things like, you know, tattoos and, 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 and hair and, you know, um, appearance, which, of course, you could change as well. So, so no, the, the, I think the, the witness accounts obviously were still questionable in the past, probably more so. Um, but um, they were more detailed. Um, mm. We're always looking out for certain things. Yeah, yeah, looking for. Uh, did you come across a lot of female detectives back then or was that just not heard of? Uh, not there were none officially, so there were no female police officers in the UK before 1915, uh, and then there aren't really any female. I don't know actually, but there aren't any female detectives really till after the Second World War. 
So there were women who got involved in, uh, in, in investigations, but, but only in a limited fashion. The women were, in, I mean, often they used the, um, the police officers' wives. They had a fairly pivotal, pivotal role. Um, so they used to um, sometimes act as decoys. So if they needed a, you know, somebody to carry out a bit of an investigation who needed to be female, they usually used their wives rather than, you know, because there were no female police officers. And they also did the searching often in the police stations if they brought in a female um, suspect that the women would do do the searching because there were plenty of female criminals. Mm. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I just wonder, so um, when you talk about Jerome and stuff and, and his um, investigations and stuff, um, do you think there's any like him today? I don't think you get the same characterization of police officers today um, as you did back then. I mean, you know, obviously we all know about the Scotland Yard detectives. So we know about, you know, from from um, TV, we know about Witcher and we know about Charlie Field, who was the um, he was the uh, model for Charles Dickens, uh, um, Inspector Bucket in uh, Bleak House. And so they were very much celebrities um, then. And in fact, um, towards the end of the century, when Jerome Caminada was at the very height of his career. He was a household name. He was called Manchester Sherlock Holmes at the time. Yet we don't really have that anymore. I think perhaps we had that a bit more in the late 20th century um, with some of the big cases, certainly in England back then, if you think about that. But it, we would be pushed to name a, name a detective, I think, whereas they were celebrities. They were reported um, in, the, in the press all the time. So when Caminada started to reach his kind of fame, all his cases were reported in the press, whereas I think, yeah, I think you'd struggle if you did a press search now for a particular detective. I don't think you'd, even with the Internet, I don't think you'd necessarily come up with as much, which is kind of strange, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Going back to uh, uh, female criminals, uh, mm -hmm. like Holmes with um, Irene, uh, I believe, Adler, Caminata mm -hmm. um, became in infatuated with um, with a female criminal. Um, did they have a relationship or how did that happen? I don't think so. I mean, that's Alicia Ormond, um, who was a con artist, basically, and quite, a, you know, quite a sophisticated one. She would write out sort of fake um, promissory notes and deeds and then cash them in. Um, he was charmed by her because he certainly says that in his memoirs. Um, but I don't think there's any evidence of any any relationship as such. Uh, he did used to, the, the lines were very blurred back then, um, and he used to, you know, all, all police officers used to take somebody out for a drink. You know, the, it was very common practice to go and take somebody for a pint of ale, male and female, you know, if they were trying to get information or if they were a potential suspect. And so he certainly did that. Um, but I don't think there's any evidence of any any physical relationship. I mean, he was a very staunch Catholic, which I know doesn't, you know, doesn't mean, <laughs> doesn't mean everything. As, uh, but But I think... He, he had a high moral, high moral stance. And of course, he could, you know, he might have been different privately. But I haven't found any. I haven't found any evidence um, that he he engaged in anything uh, untoward with his female um, suspects <laughs> or collaborators, because obviously sometimes they were informants. But he was very taken by her. His language that he uses um, in his memoirs to describe her, you know, is is quite fanciful. And you know, and he's he's obviously she obviously was beautiful. Unfortunately, I never managed to find a photograph of her. But you never know. I might do one day. Wow. You never know what turns yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be one of those moments where I stand up in the archives and, sh and shriek. Yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll come arrest you. Yep. <laughs> Make it too much noise. Um, 
Is, so at the end of the book, when someone buys the book and takes it home and reads it, is there something in particular you want them to get out of the book or is there something you hope that they take away? Um, I hope that they'd enjoy, the, the on, on the sort of more superficial level, I hope they'd enjoy his explo- exploits because it's very, he's very colourful. You know, he's quite unique. Um, there's, there's a lot of humour in his, um, you know, in, in, the, in the way that he dealt with people. There's quite a lot of funny stories. Um, but at the same time, you know, I hope that people w- would be encouraged to think beyond that and to look at, you know, think about the social issues that Caminada was dealing with or that were, you know, were current at the time, uh, the difficulties that people had to get by, uh, the circumstances that people lived in. Um, so I think that's, that's what I, I would hope for, really. Yeah, still, it would, they still had the same problems. They had the pandemic, they had wars, they had racism they had everything back then too didn't they they did they did and um and sometimes you know both ways is useful isn't it it's useful to look back at things and sometimes it's useful to use the past to to inform today you know inform us today and sometimes you know when things come up in the news you think wow you know we're going backwards here you know it was this is what it was like in the 19th century um so yeah i think we do need to use the past to you know to inform ourselves better about the present and the future yeah i think we we all too i i maybe maybe we just don't um, educate the kids enough on, on a lot of the past? I'm not sure. Uh, people seem to forget. They do, don't they? And people seem to look back at the past in rose-tinted glasses, and particularly, you know, the older generation, like my, my, perhaps my generation, or well, maybe, you know, it's easy to think that things were, you know, simpler back then and things were easier. But in fact, things have always been, you know, there have always been challenges, I think, for everybody. You only have to look in one Victorian newspaper, um, which is actually quite a fun activity is to look at, because the, there's all sorts <laughs> of wild and wacky stories. But, you, you know, you, only, you don't need to look very far to find, to find the difficulties that people um, engaged with. I don't know about children. I mean, um, you know, and, and my, my children both studied history at school. Uh, in fact, my daughter's doing a degree in history. I mean, there's still, I would say, quite a lot of focus on um, on the higher echelons of society, perhaps, and not so much, you know, on, on, the, on the ordinary people, um, which I think is starting to change. Um, lots of historians are working in this sphere. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's going in the right direction. But I think that's what we need to do is that we need to we need to provide a rounded picture um, of the past. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It wasn't all all perfect and great in the good old days. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we just sort of forget a lot of that, I think, um, you know, or don't know about it. I guess that would be the 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 case there. So, um, so what's up for you next? Like what do you got going on after this book? So, I've um I've done a couple more since smaller books and uh, but at the moment I'm doing a PhD, so I'm halfway through. So I'm looking at um, detective history and basically this kind of spring, Caminado springboarded me into this because I wanted to know, you know, how exactly the Victorian detectives um, developed their investigative skills. And not, I'm not focusing on Scotland Yard because all the, all the research in the past has virtually been on Scotland Yard. So I'm doing it on Manchester, Liverpool and Birmingham. And I hope to be able to, you know, share some brand new research into exactly how they managed to piece everything together and how they did their investigative work. So I'm mostly doing that um, and doing some lecturing alongside. And then I, but I have got some ideas uh, for new book projects later in the year, I particularly want to look at victims, perhaps um, victims of crime. And, and look at you know that side. I've been very challenged to look at that side of, of the cases, so not the kind of gory bits and the gruesome bits, but also to, to, to think more uh, deeply about the people, the other people, you know, in the in the story. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've got to finish off this academic year first. 
Mm, a lot of work. A lot of work. Do you now? Do you have a website or a place that you uh, have set up for people to come find out about your writing or book? Uh, yes, so I do have a website. It's called Victorian-SuperSleuth.com. Um, so that is yeah, all my contact details. My books are all on there, and I have a regular sleuthing blog on there as well, where I post uh, quite regularly new crime investigations and all kinds of things. It's not just not usually related these days, not so much related to Kaminada, but all kinds of crime and things that I come across, particularly from my research. Um, and I'm on Twitter as well uh, as Victorian Sleuth um, and I have a Facebook page and all the details are there on the website. Hmm. Well, we'll have that on our site as well. And we'll let, so people can find you with one click and if they're listening and, and things like that. So, so did the pandemic, um, has it gotten in the way of your, of your writing and your researching? Well, yes, sadly. Um, yes, because I haven't been able to go to any archives. I was quite fortunate that at the very beginning of 2020, I did a bit of a tour around, you know, Manchester and Liverpool and Birmingham and collated lots and lots of information. So what you tend to do these days in the archives is you basically go in and you make and you photograph about a thousand images and then you spend, you know, the next three months sifting through them. And I have fortunately done that. Um, so that's carried me through for a while. And I've managed to go to back to the National Archives, which, as I say, is in London. So it's literally just a 20 minute drive from here, 25 minute drive from here. Um, so I have popped back, but um, I'm ready to go back full uh, to the archives. I think um, they're all opening um, in May, um, basically. Um, so I'll be back at the archives soon and I hope to get back up north to some of the archives. I mean, hopefully with our vaccination programme, we've been very lucky here in, in the UK now. Um, so hopefully these will stay open um, so that we can, can it's, you know, get to the repeated trips um, is, is, is going to become quite necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I was just wondering, did you ever come across how, how was crime dealt with during the Spanish flu, like the first big pandemic that how did how did the police deal with crime and, and or did they yeah i don't know to be honest it's a very good question i do know that during the wars um you know during the first world war because obviously that was at the same similar time that was there was there was there were fewer murders i mean i think i think i mean it would be interesting to find as well you know what we when we look back on this period and analyze crime won't it because i i think my my feeling is the crime rate was probably lower um, it's a bit beyond my period because I tend to stop at the First World War, but I uh, haven't come across quite so much. You know, you also get a decline in crime as well at the beginning of the 20th century, partly because, I mean, the sort of crime that I'm dealing with, partly because conditions have improved. So in the cities like in Manchester, you know, there's got much better sanitation um, and we don't have, you know, obviously there's no financial support as such for people beyond the, you know, the parish relief or the, the workhouse. But things do start to improve. Health starts to improve. Um, and, and so the, the, the crime rate does decline. Policing, you know, improves as well. And I suspect that carries on. And then, it, of course, after the after the Second World War, we then start to get much more formal policing. Uh, you know, we get police training colleges, we get forensic labs, all those sorts of things. So, so I think probably the crime rate was was arguably lower, and and the policing was better um, during that period. So it probably didn't have you know whether it had much to do with the Spanish flu. I mean, I guess in times of crisis like that, with a natural nat uh, sort of natural and national crisis, um, people's attention is largely focused on the other places but then of course you also get tensions don't you and of course there was lots of crime 
following certainly the First World War, the, there was lots of crimes specifically relating to the experience of individuals in that war. So serving officers, you know, who maybe have been gassed, that kind of thing. But I think they were more isolated cases. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just, you know, wondering if there was a, a crime or with all of that um, trauma going on, I wonder just how, how much crime or how much they could deal with it, how much time they had and um, if they were worried about being sick or what was going on, if they had anti-maskers out there, I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah, no. They probably just ploughed on, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just, uh, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's kind of, it's it's interesting. I, it'd be it'd be kind of, there you go. I give you an idea for a new book. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's certainly been a pleasure. It's been it, we're glad you came on the show, and um, uh, we've been talking about um, the real Sherlock Holmes, and it's the hidden story. It's the hidden story of Jerome Camand Caminada. And our our guest has been the author Angela Buckley. Thank you for being here. Thank you. No, it's been wonderful. Great to speak to you. Thanks, Angela. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.